This is episode 100 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Women's Camp 2013, Theography, an Epic of Extravagant Love. This is a breakout session from Angela Burrell titled, How God Transformed My Life. Well, good morning. And um, boy, I'm, I'm sure feeling blessed for being here. I want to first say Thank you to the um, camp committee. I know that there is so much work that goes on way before all this and behind the scenes, and um, it's just such a blessing to so many women, and I am, I am very thankful for your faithfulness. I wanted to start this morning at, um, telling you a little bit about when I came to know the Lord. And um, I actually came to know the Lord at four years old, and I remember... At that time, and, and honestly, these are some of my very first memories. So if you think that your children, you know, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, neighbors down the street, whatever it is, if they are too young to know the Lord, please listen closely to my story. At that time, I just remember I did not want to be alone. I did not like being alone. That was not a good feeling to me. And there was just so much insecurity that came with that. And my mom, you know, she said, you can ask Jesus into your heart. He will always be with you. He will never forsake you. You, you can live with him, with you for the rest of your life, and then um, be assured that, that you will go to heaven because you believe in the work that he did on the cross. And um, so I, I prayed with her. But being me, I, I thought, what if mom didn't know what she was doing? What if she didn't quite have that right? It, I mean, this seems like something that needs more ceremony. You need to, to do this at a proper place and time. And so I went to church and, um, and repeated this same process with my Sunday school teacher. Then I went home and I thought, oh, what if God is not pleased with me being in front of so many people and, and, and that wasn't the right thing to do? I bet I need to do this just me and the Lord. And so I remember being in my bed and praying one more time. And at that time, just a peace came over me. And I knew I was never going to be alone, that Jesus would always be with me, that um, his payment for my sins was for certain and nothing would ever separate me from the love of God. As I turn towards today's topic, how God transformed my life, so having been saved at four years old, I don't necessarily have this dramatic excuse, well, watch my words there. I, I, I don't get to say that, oh, I did these terrible things before I was saved. <laughs> no, I, I screwed up as I was saved. And uh, I would love, sometimes I, I kind of have this weird fantasy of, wouldn't it be nice to be able to say, oh yeah, that was back before I was saved. Instead, I have no excuses. I had every opportunity to get it right. And yet, um, thank you, Lord, you are forgiving God. And, and he continues to direct me and, and transform me. And from Romans 12, verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I believe that God has continued to work on me. I've been reading a, a book with a group of ladies from my church um, by Johnny Erickson Tata. You might know of her. She's a, a quadriplegic, has done a lot of speaking and writing. She, it's a book on suffering, and yes, I chose the book to read on suffering. And she talks about, and I'm sure you've probably heard this example before, that it's like taking a piece of marble, and the Lord looks at that, and he wants to conform us to his image. So just like the artist chisels away little pieces to reveal the form that is hidden in that marble, the Lord chisels away little things. In our life. And so I've shaped them today for you into what I call lessons. But the thing is, they're not lessons that you can just get. Now, I'm a science teacher. I like logic. 
the like reasons why, and step one, step two, step three, and I can just do those. But, you know, these are things that even though logically, oh yeah, I get that, I know that's right. Yet at the same time, I do not have the strength in my life to be able to do those things that I know I should do and to not do the things that I know I should not do. And so it has to be a cooperation, a partnership with what the Lord wants to do in, in my life and in your life too. And so as I talk about these lessons, please hear me clearly. It is only with the strength of Christ in my life that I get any of it right at any point in time. So it has to be a reliance on him, right? It is that dependency upon his grace and yet that discipline that he is teaching me as well. So my, my first lesson I'm going to start with, and, and mind you, I'm not going to give you all the lessons of my life because we've been here a long, long time, and that, that's, that's too much. So I chose five that I really prayed about, and the Lord just kept rising to the top. In fact, I wanted to cut one of them. I thought, oh, Lord, this is going to run too long, and I went to cut one. And when I went to look up passages for my next point, guess what? All the passages that I looked up reinforced the point that I tried to cut. And I said, okay, Lord, you're talking to me. I'm going to listen. And so I left it. Um, anyway, so our, my first lesson comes um, at a difficult time in my life, which, you know, God has these tools that he uses to mold us. And these tools are called the nice ones and the easy ones or well quote-unquote, easy ones, the, the prayer and God's word. Um, but then, you know, the, the third one's a little harder to swallow, and that's suffering. Those are the trials. Those are the hardships. And they have to be embraced. And so my first lesson, lesson number one, look for the lesson. This, um, this came to me as a teenager, and um, when I was, this is, this is my mom, by the way, uh, Cynthia Rico, and um, she, she was one of those moms that um, on, on Christmases, she made Christmases special, you know, she did all the little, little things that just make it feel like Christmas. And when it came to birthdays, it was your special day. You get to pick out whatever cake you want, and then she would try to make it to the best of her ability. And when that day comes, she would sign, hand, you know, make hand make signs and posters, and they'd be hung all over the dining room. And it was just, Mom made you feel special. And that special love that, that only a, a, mother, a mother can bring. And as I was four years old back in 1980, it makes me 36, by the way, 37 next month. I'll just save you the calculation. And um, as I was four years old, my mother was diagnosed with stage four melanoma skin cancer. And if you know anything about cancer, stage four is bad, and uh, melanoma is a very fast-moving cancer. If they do not get it on the first cut, it's usually gone, and the person dies. I mean, it's just one of those that even back in the early 90s at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, they were not researching it much because they're just like, you know what, it moves so fast. There's these other ones that we could get further ahead with. And um, so my mom um, went in, and she had her first of, of what would be many surgeries in, in 1980, and um, they took out the cancer, which was on her upper arm. They took out her lymph nodes. And they began a series, as any of you who have had cancer or have had loved ones that have cancer are well acquainted with, you do these regular checks where you go back in and see, okay, is the cancer back? Where are we at now? How are we doing? And so uh, my parents live out in eastern Oregon, and they would make the long drive to Portland, and um, six hours to Portland to see if the cancer was back or not. And um, after five years, mind you, this whole time, I was praying. 
I really wanted a little sister. As a little kid, you don't really grasp the, the concept of cancer. I'm like, Mom's fine, she's here. And um, I just kept praying for a sister and praying for a sister and praying for a sister. And after five years, my parents figured I would be an only child because of everything that had gone on. This will probably be it for us. We'll just have, have Angela. And um, after five years, you get the cancer-free stamp. And she got her cancer-free stamp, and they said, yes, you can go ahead and have more children if you like. So my sister Sharice was born, and then uh, three and a half years later, my sister Danielle was born. So there's nine years between Sharice and I and 13 years between Danielle and I. When Danielle was 11 months old, my mom had this terrible swelling in her arm. And we all thought, okay, well, she doesn't have lymph nodes in that arm. It's probably just um, the, the inf- some kind of infection. We'll, we'll go and we'll get some, some medicines for that and we'll be good. Well, guess what? The cancer was back. Now, you have to understand, I don't want you to miss this. This was our Lazarus moment. You know, so many times we ask at the, some, at the end of somebody's life, Lord, Lord, why, why couldn't you raise them? Why couldn't they come back from the dead like Lazarus? And we miss, we miss our Lazarus moment. Mom had all these, these years with us, went on to have two more children. She should not have been able to do that. She should have been dead. Stage four melanoma moves quickly. She should have been dead back in 1980. But we had our Lazarus moment. And we, we had those extra years with mom. So as, as this cancer came back, and um, it gets interesting because um, my, my uh, stepmom was one of my mom's favorite nurses at Oregon Health Sciences. And she recalls my mom getting this diagnosis that the cancer was back. And, and just her, my babies, my babies, what about my babies? And um, at that time, at that time, um, the Lord was setting up a bigger story for us. And my mom held on for all that she was worth. She did all of the chemotherapy and radiation that she could do. She, I, I, and I am thankful for that. I understand those people that choose not to do that route, but I am very thankful that my mom chose that route because I could, at the end of, end of the day, I could say, mom tried to stay with us. She loved us so much. She tried to just have whatever minutes that she could have with us. She tried to have. And she was a prayer warrior. Um, my mom, I believe, firmly um, had that, that gifting of faith that just, you know, you know the people. You've heard them pray. And, and you're just like, they, they know it. They just, they believe even beyond belief. And... Um, she was one of those, and we had churches praying, and, and everybody was praying, but God chose to take her home in November of 1993. And at, at that time, of course, I went through the inevitable, why, Lord, why? If you ask my dad, he will tell you. He will say, you know, Angela, I know that the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of, of the home. But he goes, your, your mom was really the spiritual leader. And so it's like, Lord, why? Why, why would you take our spiritual rock there, that one that, that uh, helped us? And at some point, at some point, you have to release that. And you have to trust and accept that God knows best and that, that God's plan is greater than yours. God loves mom more than I loved mom. God loves my sisters more than I do. He loves my dad more than I do. And, and you have to hang on to that. And um, I love Romans 9, verse, verse 20. It says, But who are, are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, okay. Why have you made me like this? Why? 
because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The message says that last part this way, careful, I've put a huge stone on the road to Mount Zion, a stone you can't get around, but the stone is me. If you're looking for me, you will find me on the way, not in the way. You see, when we come to these trials in our life and these hardships, um, it can be that stumbling stone. But at some point, you have to realize that to continue to view it that way is to fight God. And that's not where we're supposed to be. We have to trust. And so for me, what I did was I quit, I quit asking why, and I started to say, okay, Lord, I may not know why until I get to heaven, although I do feel strongly that God has given me little glimpses of how he has used this. But I know what I can do. I can look for the lesson. I can look for what you have for me right here, right now, what you have for me that's going to teach me something and how you're going to mold me and conform me into the, the image of your son. And so... Uh, that's how I came to this idea of look, look for the lesson. And I, I believe this is very biblical. Why do I say learning? It's because, um, and I should back up and say, uh, in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Why is this a familiar verse? Because we have to hold on to it. In these moments of hardships and trials and sufferings, we have to hold on to that. We have to, that's how you trust God. We know that he's working it together for good. So back to this idea, why learning? Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you realize the purpose of the book of Proverbs is to produce the skill of godly living by wisdom and instruction? The MacArthur Bible Commentary says, To the Hebrew mind, wisdom was not knowledge alone, but the skill of living a godly life as God intended man to live. Instruction refers to the discipline of moral nature. Understanding looks at the mental discipline, which matures a person for spiritual discernment. The next lesson that I want to share with you is don't rely on others to keep your faith built up. That is between you and God. I realized at this moment when mom passed and, you know, Lord, why, why remove the spiritual leader of a woman? Um, I needed to make my faith my own. It, it couldn't be mom saying, oh, Angela, you, you should be in church today. Oh, Angela, go to this youth group. Oh, Angela, don't listen to that music. Listen to this music. And I realized, you know what? I, I need to own my faith. And I, I have realized recently, this has come back to me again, that, um, by the way, have, have any of you, this is coming back to me through my church, believe it or not, and I realize that I cannot expect that, um, that my spiritual growth is a responsibility of my church or my pastor. It does not matter how strong or weak my church is or how good or how poor my pastor is. My spiritual growth is between me and God. I'm the one who's going to have to give an account to the Lord. And, and so that's, that's where I, I need to get with my mind with that. And what's interesting is we get to this, this spot. Perhaps, for example, you have somebody that you've leaned on heavily, 
of, I don't know, whoever it is that, that's been in your life that has encouraged you towards the Lord, you know, thank the Lord for them, first of all. Thank the Lord for them. But don't make them an idol for yourself. When we are accepting God's gift of salvation, at that moment, and his, his uh, work on the cross, he said, it is finished once for all. That levels the playing field. We're all here positionally before the Lord. If you believe that he has paid the price for your sin and you have confessed him and put your faith in Christ, then we are here as believers together, um, not one in front of another. I want to say Romans 14, 10 to 12 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, here's where I want you to pay attention. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. The uh, New Living Translation says, give a personal account to God. Not your friend, not your pastor, not your church, just you. Matthew 16, 13 through 18 says, Now when Jesus came to the dist district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Why, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Notice, he spent all this time teaching these men who he was. And yet he stops and he asks the question, Why? Because he wants them to own their faith. Listen to it. He says, uh, And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Some versions say Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice Peter's identity comes from his profession of Jesus as Messiah. It's at that moment that Jesus formally renames him uh, Petros, which means small stone. Don't forget, Jesus is the Petra. He is the cornerstone. He is, and mind you, Petra means mass of rock or capital T, the rock. Notice that that small stone of truth that Peter professed there of Jesus as Messiah, that that is that rock then, that uh, this truth of Jesus as Messiah, because we know that Jesus is the head of the church. I, I just want to make sure to hit on that because sometimes People look at that passage and they misconstrue that and start setting Peter up as being something that he's not there. He is a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. Don't forget it. And I, that will help you too at moments. Uh, has anybody gone through a church assess assessment at all? You know, the last time I asked this in the last workshop, oh, hallelujah, good, good. Okay, we are, we are too. And... Um, and so that's why it's kind of come to me that it is not for me to set a man or a person as the head of the church. It is Jesus that is the head of the church, and do not forget that because you will set somebody else up for failure. And so this brings me to my um, next lesson, this idea of Peter getting his identity from his profession of faith. Lesson number three, you are not what you do, you are who you are in Christ. This came knocking at my door in 2009. I had terrible pains down my left leg that just shot down. No amount of ibuprofen, which I was taking regularly as often as I could, um, could just even take the edge off of it. And I'm like, gosh, something is going on. I just I can't figure out this pain down my leg. I'm hobbling around. And um, so we went and finally had it checked out. And, of course, it was a hemorrhage disc, L5, 
with S1 nerve impingement. And I'm here to tell you, oh my goodness, that nerve pain is nasty stuff. Anybody had nerve pain before? Oh, there's just nothing like it. Oh boy. And, and at that time, you know, you're, you're like, okay, we went in for surgery and they take out the piece of the disc that spilled out and they sew you back up. And, um, and then, then you have six weeks of no bending, lifting, or twisting. What can you do that you do not bend, lift, or twist? I'd like to know. And I had a two-year-old. And, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what, what am I going to do? I can't even look after my child. We quickly transitioned her from the crib to the big girl bed and, uh, and, and then told her she was to get herself into bed because mommy couldn't help her. If she had, every time she fell down and stubbed her toe, I would have to sit down. Oh, come, come here, Teal. Let, let mommy comfort. I, you know, there was no picking her up. There was no packing her places. She was to walk. And I thought to myself, Lord, what good am I? I come from a ranching background. And on the ranch, <laughs> it's all about what you can get done in a day. Oh, yeah, I rode around seven miles to fence today. Never mind that it's takedown fence and it's just going to have to be done in another month or whatever. Uh, but, you know, it's all about getting, or I put up, oh, I put up X number of ton of hay today. Got her all piled in there. We're good for the winter. Um, so I came to this spot of, Lord, I just know you want me helping people. I can't even go rake their leaves because that would be twisting. And uh, how, how can this be? This cannot be your will for my life. And I felt him impress upon me, Angela, you're missing the point. You're not what you do because that goes back to works. You're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone. Your identity comes from me. And this is where we run into trouble, folks, because there's so many people in our culture especially that, that want to find themselves. And they've, you realize God has placed in us a yearning for the eternal. And so there's this void that only he can fill. And yet we find that we're searching for something and looking for something to fill that void. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's that new boat, the new car, the new couch, the new bed, the new addition. Do you get the point? Alcohol, drugs. I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't know what, what your vice is. But nothing, nothing will fill that void besides Jesus Christ. Nothing will fill it. God did, make it, did not make it to be filled by things. Charles Swindoll says in Insights to Romans, sin is usually the result of someone trying to fill a legitimate, God-given need in an illegitimate way. The believer's life derives from being in Christ. His or her joy must be found in Christ. His or her success depends on resting in Christ. And we have fellowship with others who are? Thank you. So I want to talk about this identity in Christ. And I'm going to just give you a few verses. I have a whole bunch more, so if you'd really like some more verses, it's really hard for me to pare things down. So if you'd like more, please come see me later. I have others. Anyways, first of all, I am accepted in Christ. And I'm just going to paraphrase here because I'm going to run out of time to go into all of these verses at length. But I encourage you to look them up on your own. It is very edifying. Ephesians 1.5, in effect, says, I have been adopted as God's child. Colossians 1.14, in effect, says, I have been redeemed and forgiven. Colossians 2.10 says, I am complete in Christ. The next point that I want to make here, I am secure in Christ. Your security does not come from your bank account. It does not matter how much money you have set aside. It can be gone in an instant. The security is in Christ alone. Romans 8, 35 to 39, in effect, says, I cannot be separated from the love of God. 
2 Timothy 1.7, in effect, says, I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, self-control, self-discipline, depending on what version you're looking at. 1 John 5.18 says, I am born of God. The evil one cannot touch me. The next point here with your identity in Christ, I am significant in Christ. John 15, 16, in effect, says, I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. Acts 1, 8 says, I am a personal witness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21 says, I am an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through me. Linda Dillow, in her uh, book, Calm My Anxious Heart, love that book, by the way, it's very good, I am convinced She says, I am convinced that a woman who struggles with her identity and purpose is a woman who has abdicated control of who she is becoming. Don't forget, God is painting a picture on the canvas of our lives. I just, I love that this ties in with the fact that we've had an artist here. Our bodies are merely the frame. God intends to paint a beautiful picture, a picture to others of our character and unique expression of Christ's life and place it in this frame, but he can't create this work of art without our cooperation. It needs to be a lifelong joint project between God and us. This brings me to my next lesson. God is a restorer of relationship, not only with God through Jesus Christ, his son, but also with others. Now, After mom died, it was very apparent that my father would not last long by himself. My dad is not an emotional processor. I don't know if you've ever been around one of those. But it's just like they're, oh, baby. When it comes to the emotions, it's kind of like he just doesn't even know what to do with that. And um, I remember on my 18th birthday, the first birthday without mom, you know, and I'm blubbering and crying and and he goes and he buys me a flower and he gives it to me it's 18's not so bad it really isn't I'm just like, I, okay thanks thanks dad and uh, it was very sweet I actually still have the little stuffed animal that came with it but I knew that he needed somebody and so I I thought I was ready for that and um maybe after four years he he starts he starts dating, which was kind of, my dad's dating, okay. Um, and, and I thought, all right, I know you need somebody. This is the right thing. But it's a very, uh, you feel very insecure. And those insecurities come out uh, always in ugly ways. And um, as he remarried then, and he remarried my uh, stepmom, Muffet, and that is not a nickname, that is her name, Muffet. And yes, and she, she's, she'll tell you this, yes, as in Little Miss. And, uh, and she's just this petite, cute little thing, so it kind of goes along with all that. But anyway, um, he married her in May 20, on May 24th, 1997. And I was at that time in college, and I would be, I would go home for the summers. I told you I lived on a ranch. And I would, uh, hey, that was part of my, uh, how, how did he put it? The stipend, uh, then he, I would hey, and he would give me a stipend to go to college. And so I said, okay, that's fair enough. I can handle that. And I prepared to go home then to a, a new family. And, and she brought with her, and isn't this how the Lord works? You, you know, now I told you, I prayed for sisters. Well, Muffet had a daughter, Caitlin, who is here too. Caitlin, smile, wave. She's adorable. And uh, anyway, she was four years old when Muffet and Dad got married. And so all of a sudden, you know, here's this little girl who had prayed for sisters, and I, I have now three sisters. And I... I thought I was ready for that. Although I knew it was going to be hard, I actually went to a counselor at college because I thought, this is going to be hard. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I know it's going to be hard, and I want to do it right. 
So I go to the counselor at college, and she, you know, they ask you questions. They don't really tell you, oh, what, how do you feel about that? <laughs> okay. And at the end of it, at the end of it, she's like, oh, you're a real take the problem by the, uh, you know, bull by the horns kind of gal. You'll be fine. I thought, well, okay. And so I went home. And on the other hand, I want you to understand the picture, and, and forgive me, Muff, I'll probably get this messed up, of where Muff was coming from as she joined this family. She had wanted children. She had been through a, a difficult delivery with um, Caitlin that had almost taken her life. And, and so she, she always wanted more children, and so here was this man that came with three daughters, and um, one of them was 20, and uh, so I, I can only imagine that that, that was, um, there would be some insecurities there. Okay, how is this going to work? Here is this man who has his daughters. He's already spent, spent 20 years with the oldest daughter. He's got more history with her than he does with me right now. Where am I going to fit in this picture? How are they going to respect me? Are they going to love me? Are they going to resent me? How, how am I going to fit in this picture? And as you might have it, and I, I'm, this is where I'm not going to rehearse hurts for you because I do not feel that is edifying, um, but we hit heads hard. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were toe-to-toe -to -toe in each other's face. It was ugly, and I am ashamed. And, um, and it came around to the next summer, and I went to go get ready to go home again. And dad said, you cannot come home. He goes, I cannot take that fighting, that arguing, that pressure anymore. You cannot come home. So my Aunt Brenda, who runs the ranch with my dad and lives with my grandmother, she said, well, you come and you live with us. And, and you can still work on the ranch and you live with us. My grandmother who, you know, Grandma was born in 1918, still alive, by the way. She came from a time period where that's not how you do things. No, no, she did not understand. She was just like, you need to get over this. Why, why is this an issue? You just get over it and you move through it. What's the problem? And so Grandma did not understand, and Aunt Brenda's like, it's fine, it's fine, you're, you're here. And uh, every time I went down to the home ranch, went past the house, I cried, uh, when they were there, I cried. When they weren't there, I cried um, because it felt like I had lost everything at that point. God brought me to the point of brokenness of, okay, if you're not going to get your mind around the plan, then I will put you in aloneness. You realize the ultimate um, in discipline is separation. Do you realize that when we do not accept Christ's gift of salvation and we die without knowing him, you end up in ultimate separation from him in hell? That's what, what I mean, they play off this in, in our prisons, right? What's when it gets really bad and they really have to crack down on somebody, what do they do? Isolation, exactly. Well, God brought me to this point of brokenness. And I realized at that point, you know what, Lord? All through college, I had let you sit on the back burner. Oh, Lord, I have an exam. I am a good student. I've got to study today. I don't have time for church. Lord, I, I've, got, I've got these lab reports I've got to write up. You know, that has to be done tonight. I don't have a moment to go to Youth for Christ. And on and on this went. And, and as the enemy would have it, I'm just like, Lord, I'm okay. I still believe that you're God's son. I still believe on your work, the work you did in the cross. I'm okay. Oh, boy. Watch out for that one. And my Bible sits on the shelf. Yeah, it's still on the shelf, Lord. And I realized, Angela, you've missed it. You've got to be seeking him. And I started to go back to church. I chose a really big church where you could, you know, one of those ones where you can just sit in the back and nobody knows you're there. And you can slip out and nobody knows you were there. It's all good. And um, that's how I started back again. And this 
reason why I go into this story for you is because the Lord moved in my life and in the life of my stepmom. And he brought us together in ways that I just can't even begin to describe you. I went from this girl, when I lost my mom, I remember telling her, Mom, what do I do without you? Who's going to be there when I come home? And Mom, what do you think of this guy? Mom, can we pick out a wedding dress together? Mom, I'm going to have a baby. When I was 13, when I was 13, I remember coming home. Okay, Mom, I've started my period. And uh, she's like, oh, I'm going to be a grandma someday. And I'm like, whoa, Mom. (laughs) We're jumping the gun a little bit here. And, um, and yet, God took us from that place of, I tell you, and Muff would tell you too, the only thing we had in common at that one point was that we both loved my dad, and we both loved the Lord. And God took us from there, and he brought us back together and worked us through that. And yes, it was awkward at times. We, we had little, I'd come home for a weekend, we'd do these little debriefs after the week. Okay, how did, how did you feel this weekend went? <laughs> you know, what, what was okay? Was there something that was said that made you feel uneasy? How did this go? You know, so at first it's, it's a little awkward. Yeah, I'll admit that. Um, but you know what? God works in, in beautiful, beautiful ways. And all of a sudden, I, I was really sick, and I, it was my first year of teaching, which, of course, you catch everything that comes down the road when you're teaching. And uh, I just got this terrible flu. One of those ones where it's like your, your blankets are, are chaining you to the bed. You can't get out of bed. And uh, then you feel like you're just going to fall down. And so um, Muff is a nurse, as I told you. And she came. She came to sit with me as I was sick. She has come to every surgery that I've ever had, which unfortunately is starting to get to be a few at this point. And um, when I got ready to have my first child, I, I wrote her a letter, and, and I said, you know, this is your grandchild. I wanted there to be no mistakes. You're not the substitute. You're the grandma. And... Um, and she was there with us as we gave, um, well, as we had teal cut out, as that was another surgery. <laughs> and uh, she was, was there as we went home and started, you know, that moment of first bringing that first child home where you're like, oh dear, now what do you do with it? <laughs> <laughs> and um, gave her her first bath at home. She was there when, back even further, when I I came home from, you know, Gus, my husband, wanted to um, seriously date. And I I come back home, because I happened to be visiting of a weekend. He and I come from the same small town. And, um, Muff, what what do you think of this? Am I nuts to try dating this guy? And we talked that through. And then when it came time for my wedding, I'm like, Muff, I'd, I'd really like it if you'd come with me to find that wedding dress. And, uh, and we found the dress. And she was there for all of that. And every time I've been sick, and I just thought, Lord, thank you. Thank you how much I would have missed. How much I would have not felt your hand. And, um, and he's just... He sent his son to the cross to restore relationship. He wants to restore relationship. And I have a picture. Oh, I'm skipping a verse, aren't I? Okay, let me read the verse and then we'll, we'll move on to the picture. Uh, Romans 14, 19 says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You see, at some point, we both had to lay down those, those hurts that we had done to one another. And you just have to let them go. Otherwise, you can't move forward. And you just trust the Lord with them. And you just give them over. You say, Lord, just help me to release these things. Help me to forgive. Help me to uh, move forward and, and help her to forgive me as well. And 
Charles Swindoll says on, in his Insights on Romans, he says this, at the end of the day, we will answer not from what we put into our stomachs, but what the attitudes we have nurtured in our hearts. What is our focus? Are we more concerned with people's preferences than the true product of Christian growth, righteousness, peace, and joy? Defensiveness, and I learned this, I learned this, defensiveness will slow this process. If you want to sit there, oh, but, wow, they, and you pull out your list. The defensiveness will slow the process. And I guarantee you, pride will kill it. Pride will kill it. There are times that you, this, this process um, has to be a three-party show. You def, whoever you is, ha, forgiveness is a given. It has to happen, regardless if you reconcile or not. But reconciliation is a three-party show. You, the other person, and God. It can only be done with those three. Colossians 3, 12 to 17 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Oh, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Charles Swindoll, again in his Insights on Romans, says, how we choose to respond verbally prepares us for our next decision. If we want to obey the command to avoid returning evil for evil, we must bring our tongues under control. Our behavior should be guided by godly character. Listen closely to this part. Not pulled here or there by this insult and that offense. Vengeance cannot heal wounds. I learned that, and I know that. Romans 12, 14, 18, and 21 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's a picture of um, Muff with my two girls. Teal is six, and Shiloh is 17 months, and... She is the best at playing with the girls. Oh, Grandma's here. We play cards. They get out all of these games, and, and um, they just, that is so special to them, and, and they just look forward to that every time they see her. I want to say one last thing about reconciliation. There are sometimes relationships that become a snare of Satan. There are truly people we are not to reconcile with. Forgive, absolutely, absolutely. But sometimes we are guided by the Lord to not ever return to that relationship. You know, and the, the ones that jump to my mind, um, in some cases I think of victims of abuse, physical abuse. In some of those cases, you are not to return, you know, and that's between you and the Lord to, to decipher when that is and when that is not. And the other one that I can think of is, would be an adulterous relationship. That's just not a friendship that you're going to keep. You know, I mean, seriously, I, I just, I, we, even my husband and I, um, I actually ask him about who he feels that it's appropriate that I'm Facebook friends with. And there are a few of them, he said, eh, why, why would you need to do that? And I say, you're right, that's fine. And it actually, you know what? For me, it's a relief because it's like, I didn't, yeah, I didn't want to have to try to go there anyway. So uh, thank you. <laughs> there you go. God always gives us a way out, just as Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. So the last lesson that I'd like to share with you today is lesson number five. God can use fellowship to grow our faith. So 
after I had Teal in 2007, you know, I, and I told you she was a C-section baby, so I was initially planning this, you know, because I thought you've planned these things, <laughs> right? And uh, I thought, okay, yes, that, that two to three year spread, that would be lovely. And, um, and that's what we'll do. Well, then came the gallbladder surgery and then the back surgery. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't quite going to work. I'm not going to be able to have a baby as I'm recovering from back surgery. So we finally get over that. And um, okay, we're ready to start trying. And we try. <laughs> and we try. And another month goes. And another month goes. I'm like, what is going on here? And another month goes by. And another month goes by. So finally, I turn to a, a woman in the church that I'm very good friends with. And I'm just like, Nancy. Nancy, we're really trying to have a, have a baby, and, and it's just not happening. She's like, I'm going to be praying for you. And, and, I kept, and I come back to her a little while later, Nancy, it's, it's, it's really not happening. I just, this is weird. It's just not happening. You have to understand, um, although I, I sort of figured that I would have, I don't know why, it was in my mind that I was going to have trouble conceiving. And um, with Teal... We got pregnant the first month we tried. And so this just kept going on and on and on. And um, Nancy tells me, she says, Angela, I believe that the Lord is going to bless you with another child. And um, I'm just, we're just going to keep praying. And I remember at that time, I'm like, okay, well, this, I think I'm going to have to get a few more prayer warriors on board if this is going to happen. <laughs> and so um, I, I turned to my small group in my ladies' Bible study, and I told them, and my friend Sarah was in the group at the time, and Nancy reiterated to the group, I believe, that God is going to bless. And I, I cannot tell you what it was that Nancy saw other than to say that Nancy is one of those prayer warriors that she ticks when it comes to prayer. And she is one who has that, that faith, that just that extra little gifting of faith. And she felt strongly that the Lord had, had laid upon her that, that this would eventually happen. And so she told that to my small group, and, and Sarah was there, and she was like, oh, don't tell her that. <laughs> you don't know that. Don't tell her that. And, um, and yet we continued to pray, and I got pregnant, and we're all excited and, and uh, starting to plan out, oh, yes, it'll be November, we can do this, we'll tell people then, this is how we'll tell them. And, um, and then all of a sudden, I started spotting. I'm like, I never spotted with teal, and uh, I'm like, guess something's, something's wrong. And so we go in to the doctor, and I was just thinking, okay, well, they'll just give me medicine, and I'll be fine. And uh, where's the magic pill? And um, my, my doctor, thankfully, is, is very sensitive to these things. And she goes, I'm sorry, Angela, you've already lost this baby. She did not say this pregnancy. She said this baby. And I am very thankful that, I, that she did that because... If you're one of those that has experienced a, a miscarriage or a loss of a child, you know the, the moment that you're pregnant, your body just gears up. That is your child. There's, there's a, I, I feel like at that point, I, I think I started of had this glimpse of what it might just possibly be like to have an abortion where... You don't realize the emotional ramifications until after it's done, and you think, whoa, you know, everything in your body is meant to be geared for this little baby. And, um, and so, you know, I went home, and mind you, wouldn't you know it, we find out the, like a day or two before Teal's birthday. So I call my family up because I'm like, okay, I don't want them to come over for this birthday and be like, oh, yeah, and we just lost a baby. And... Um, I'm like, I don't want you to associate this with her birthday, so I'm going to let you know ahead of time. But, you know, it, it's still kind of hung over us. And you wait the three months, and you start again this process. And for two years, my friend Nancy prayed for me. For two years, she, Angela, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. So um, finally, at the end of that two-year period, we got pregnant again. 
And, um, and, and Gus and I were, as you do after you've had a miscarriage, mm, we'll wait to tell people at this point until we make sure everything's going to go okay. And, um, and sure enough, another week went by and I started to spot. I said, no, Lord, please, no. And I called my friend Nancy right away before I called the doctor. And uh, I'm like, Nancy, we need you praying for us. I said, I don't know what's going on. I'm spotting again. And um, she's, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to keep praying. And we went in. And I honestly, at that point, I just kind of expected them to say, you've lost another baby. And she said, my doctor says, you know, Angela, your hormone levels are high. That looks good. Let's get you in for an ultrasound. And um, I wasn't that far along. So she said, you know, you may or may not have a heartbeat at this point. And I was just, oh, Lord, please let there be a heartbeat. Please give me that hope of a heartbeat. And all this time we are praying, Lord, help this child be healthy and strong. Help her to be healthy and strong. Teal, mind you, was praying for a sister. And... Um, and so we go in, and of course, there was a heartbeat, a very strong one, and, and early on, so that was also a good sign. I went through this pre pregnancy as a high-risk pregnancy, and um, they monitored me closely, but things went smoothly, and um, I gave birth to a healthy little girl, and... Um, mind you, when I was going through this this morning, and in my quiet time... I have to share this with you. So this was my verse this morning as I started into my quiet time. First of all, then, I urge, this is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We are to pray for others and, and encourage them in their faith. And I believe it is, it is those, those prayers that we are told to pray. Jesus prayed for us in John 17. Paul prayed for everybody that was on that ship headed for Rome, even his captors, right? And that led to the building of their faith. They were able to, to cut loose those, those boats that they thought were going to save their lives and trust And I know that that led to some of them being eternally saved. Um, I'm going to skip over one of those examples, Sarah. God can do all things alone. We are not needed, and yet he chooses to use us. Um, in Live a Praying Life, Jennifer Kennedy Dean says, although prayer does not change God's will, it does activate God's will. Prayer is the channel through which God's will is brought to earth. Because of sin, there exists a gap between what God has prepared and is ready to release and what is happening on earth. Prayer bridges that gap. If God were going to do his will without our prayers, then why did Jesus teach us to pray, let your will be done on earth like your will is done in heaven? Ezekiel 22.30, and this is out of the New Living Translation, says, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. Prayer is how we enter the battle. Do you notice in Ephesians 6, you might have had this pointed out to you, I just, I love this. It shows you the armor of God, and then it's like, and now, after you're all armored up, now what do you do? Pray. Now pray. Prayer is how we enter the battle. Enter the battle. So, oh, and here we go. Here's the pictures of the girls. And there's our little Shiloh. And you see this little mischievous look on this girl? I know this is because we prayed that she would be healthy and strong. Oh, my word, this girl is so strong-willed uh, that Gus and I are continually looking at each other going, oh, my word, are we going to survive this one? And, uh, yeah, she is a card. Is in the exact opposite of Teal. Teal's the, the sensitive, very conservative, careful one. She, Shiloh just dives in head on. So I, I totally identified with Pam and her oldest and youngest. That, that's exactly how my girls are. So let me wrap this up for you. In conclusion, 
Always look for the lessons God has for you. Don't rely on others to keep your faith built up. That is between you and God. You are not what you do. You are who you are in Christ. God is a restorer of relationship, not only with God, but also with others. God can use fellowship to grow our faith.